Welcome back, everybody, to Option 5. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, we're talking to Mike Brummett. He's a product manager at Super Dispatch. Super Dispatch is the number one rated app that has revolutionized the car hauling industry through cutting-edge technology and a platform tailored to the unique needs of car haulers. Lot there. He is really just running and gunning with learning as fast as he possibly can to help take Super Dispatch to the next level. What's really interesting about the conversation we had with Mike is that he had gone from his own personal startup, which was literally in hardware technology, looking for potholes in cities around the the nation, um, to jumping into thinking about fixing hardware problems with Super Dispatch, and now a marketplace that they built over the summer. His jump into product management, you can tell he's really been thoughtful. Something that I love that he said was that a product manager ought to be a scope critic. And that is um, really hard to do, really hard to prioritize and think about what goes first, how you get that MVP out, and how you iterate moving forward. Lots more in the conversation, um, but really, really smart guy, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's going to make your companies better as you think about how to be intentional with connecting maybe what you learn early stages of a startup into what it looks like when your company's scaling. Let's get into the show. Mike, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You can go as far back as you want to, age five, if you will. Perfect. Um, and then just began. kind of go along that timeline and how you got to where you are today. I'll give you like an age seven example, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I love yeah, it. yeah. Back in elementary school, I guess it started back then, only with hindsight. Um, I would uh, go to the school store, buy a bunch of erasers, pencils, and stuff like that, bring it back to the classroom, and then I'd sell it for like a two or three X markup. And then nice. so good. Uh, made so much money doing that, that we had a book fair. And uh, when I spent around like one or $200 there, everyone was very suspicious, but still took my money. And so I yeah. took all the books home, got in trouble. And then one week later, my parents were like, we're sorry. Thank you for, <laughs> you know, wanting to learn and <laughs> liking to read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's where it started. But, yeah. um, oh, it's brilliant. In, in my mind, everything is just really a blur until mm. I was like halfway through college realizing that you know what, like, uh, I don't really want to be just, you know, a business major, someone that does, does some part of the cog in a very large corporate machine. And, uh, rather I just keep reading like, you know, hacker news and I yeah, keep looking at all these yeah. startups. This is back in the day before pre-seed rounds existed. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. That's <laughs> and it was just a lot days. of Sam Altman and, you know, Reed Hoffman stuff. Yeah. But really it was in college. I got exposed to, um, an opportunity my freshman year. I believe, yeah. Second semester of my freshman year, um, some local Kansas City people from from Rockhurst, from William Jewell. Um, yeah, I mean, Zach Pettit's probably the most prominent one oh, I can mention Zach. beside mm-hmm. uh, Bradley Dice and Sarah Jones. Yeah, and they were putting together just you know this cross collaboration student startup competition that had a civic context, mm-hmm. and I got invited. It started at eight a.m. in the morning. Never mm-hmm. wanted to go. Thought about not going when I woke up that morning dragged myself there and it completely changed my life. Um, it was at that startup competition that I, like the inception of the company that I've been running for about four and a, four and a half years now mm-hmm. actually began. Wow. And it was at the same time that, you know, Google Fiber took off. Right. Kansas City Streetcar was brand new. Cisco Smart City Initiative, Sprint Partnerships, everything like that was just taking off in the city. It was right, right time and the right formula. Yeah. That's so exciting. So, so tell us more about that. Tell us about the company and, sure. and, and what you guys do. Yeah, so at that startup competition, um, I mean, 
this is like version 0.1. I love it. I love Um, it. The idea, no product at all, of course, was that we were going to put sensors on this streetcar that, you know, goes around this 2.2 mile loop in downtown Mm -hmm. Kansas City. Um, So it could identify debris on the roadways. It could, you know, proactively find cracks and potholes on the road. And Mm -hmm. then we could report that data back to the city for, you know, either a price or some sort of just civic value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw applications with just citizens themselves, you know, maybe we sell this at cost, we allow cities to actually improve the roads. And as most startup competitions go, once it's over, you never talk, think, or do anything about it again. Yep. Been and, there, uh, been there, done that. Yeah. And uh, me too. And that was about this, <laughs> that was the case for about nine months, about a year. Right. Until one day, and as a little more background, like I, I've always been building computers and mm-hmm. Raspberry Pis and stuff like that for my entire life. Cannot program, but I can copy and paste very well. And I have friends. Honestly, so. I think the best programmers can copy and paste really well. Yeah, too. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. I share one quality. Yeah. Um, but uh, one day I realized I could actually build these kinds of sensors that would, you know, identify these cracks and potholes oh, on the road, cool. just scraping around for libraries and stuff that might be applicable, mm-hmm. like just kind of on the edge of what I was technically capable of doing was at least organizing the information needed to right. build these things. And I think purely that's just resourcefulness and leverage that into an MVP and the craziest story of all. And, you know, later there is a clear consequence, but, um, we were able to take, we like, uh, myself and a couple other friends that were engineers and the data scientist, we were able to create this product, a hardware product and sell it into the GovTech space Hmm. with our first customer with a six month turnaround from, um, like realizing we could build this to building it and closing our first enterprise level deal with a mid-sized metropolitan city around Kansas City. Welcome to uh, a modern yeah. technology company. I mean, like that's that's the, the best. I mean, like, cause that is, I don't think it would ever been possible, um, what, 10, 15 years ago? No, maybe, ab- maybe absolutely not. And, and the name of that company, Sensory. Sensory. And yeah. were you able to take it outside of Kansas City? How many um, clients? What other metro areas were you in? Well, I'll back up a little bit because um, uh, our sales strategy at the time was all about pilot programs, you know, going to cities and being like, hey, try this out for one mm-hmm. month, try this out for three months. If you like it, you can sign, you know, this conditional contract that says, you know, it's going to cost this much if, you know, it provides X value, right. whatever ROI they're interested in. Um, but it's really incredulous for someone that's my age. I'm 24 back then I was 21 Mm -hmm. to be selling to a city council that was full of people that were at least the age of 60 Mm -hmm. all had a lot of gray hair and I had absolutely zero and you know I had to bring in like essentially just advisors and friends to just sit with me Mm -hmm. in -hmm. those meetings they didn't really say anything yet that helped close deals (laughs) is that pretty common because this is probably the second or third uh, civic oriented startup, um, that I felt like the way to get into, um, cities as a customer was to do some sort of pilot. It's almost like they have to see it happen, um, even in universities. So it's like in that kind of like nonprofit or civic space there, like the pilot is like a thing. Well, it it absolutely is. And yeah, it's like the free trial except for an enterprise right. level customer. Right, so it's, right. yeah. And when you're a team of literally three and sometimes one, yeah. uh, you really just have to handhold the entire process. Mm-hmm. Like you, since you can't afford a lawyer, since you're bootstrapping it, mm-hmm. you find the templates online for sales agreements and conditional contracts. You 
you know, use words that you think are correct. And, well, and especially <laughs> they sign, especially it. in like a hardware space. I mean, oh, if you were too. able to do a MVP or pilot with um, like a SaaS product, that's not as nearly, or it seems like it wouldn't be nearly as expensive um, on your, on your end of the person that's producing it to implement versus like hardware. Cause well, there's installation there. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> so we would usually do the installation. I mean, version one of so these you devices, can cover up how, you know, maybe janky it is at oh, first. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, for oh, sure. It was oh, in, totally. A lot it was of duct tape. Yeah. case yeah. that yeah. was screwed down with like, you know, one of those proprietary screws that no one just has lying uh-huh. around. You can't uh-huh. go to the hardware they store. They need an iFixit yeah. kit to open yeah. that up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that actually touches on something rather important too. Like um, at the beginning, it was actually like really expensive, difficult hardware and really expensive, difficult software to develop mm-hmm. because the very first version was computer vision, actually. So we were using oh, little images that we collected as city vehicles drove around the roads because yeah. they're already paying that cost. These trucks are driving every inch of those roadways, whether or not they collect roadway data. Mm-hmm. And that became incredibly expensive as a store. And not to mention, it was even more expensive to process that data, yeah. um, at least from like our very first initial test. And really, the amount of validation we did for it was very little. Mm-hmm. It was, in fact, too little because um, we underestimated the cost of what it would actually be. And then we looked at it, we val- tried to validate it, and then we overestimated the cost of what oh, it would actually be. And we immediately pivoted. And that pivot put us in a place where we could not scale. So mm-hmm. right now we still only have one city under contract because uh, wow. this is because of the challenges of selling to government, because of where I was in life, and because of uh, I raised like the smallest equity round you can imagine. And uh, was never able to replicate the same success that we saw in the city's Grandview, Missouri. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's just sat on the back burner for years until um, we pivoted again in the middle of my tenure at Super Dispatch. Wow. wow. Okay, so Super Dispatch. Yes. Um, you're currently your product manager there. Tell right. us about uh, the company, but also your role um, sure. there as a product manager. Absolutely. So Super Dispatch is in the vehicle shipping and logistics space. Mm. Um, in, in reality, we are an end-to-end vehicle shipping platform. Okay. That means whether you are the truck driver out on the road with the big trailer with nine cars, maybe just a Ford 350 pulling a small trailer with three cars, doesn't matter who you are. If you're out on the road or if you're an OEM like BMW, if you're a broker, you're a shipper of any type, this is the end-to-end API that you use to get cars moved, just no touch. It's really the 80-20 rule. Okay. Essentially, we turn internal transport teams or brokers into exception management. So you have that script down very well. Yeah. Good job. job. As the use case is just so um, I'm understanding correctly. So there's two users. I'm a truck driver and I have a truck and I want to haul some cars. I can get on here and say I'm available uh, to whomever to haul it. Or if I am a BMW dealer or I own a car lot and I need to ship some cars, I can get on this platform and find a hauler as well. Exactly. So it's kind of a double, double-sided marketplace. Yeah. Whether you're okay. a driver or you're in the back office for, mm-hmm. you know, a, a truck driving company essentially, mm-hmm. or you're a middleman that just, you know, finds, has a bunch of customers that need cars moved regularly. And you're always just finding new people that can move those cars and picking the best rates, the best delivery times. I have to be honest. I don't think I knew that it was only cars. That's awesome. Cause I mean, I'm obviously, I think you probably can think about where it could go after that, but the, 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 the fact that that's such a, a great way of you guys niching down into a space that mm-hmm. you can say, Oh, we're going to go target people specifically that are moving mm-hmm. cars. Oh, yeah. So well, great. it's, it's an incredible niche. And I mean, when we say we're going to be a $1 billion company, that 
comes fully knowing that, you know, at first we're going uh-huh. to dig this, mm-hmm. you know, one foot diameter, one mile deep hole in this vertical for vehicle shipping. Mm-hmm. And then we can replicate it geographically. And then mm-hmm. we can talk about other freight. And some people already as edge cases, there are like shipping ports that use our software somehow. Wow. <laughs> it's a very confusing use cases. They just use fields that say one thing mm-hmm. and they treat it as something else. Uh, they just make it work because that's the nature of the industry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, except for the last two cars I bought, I've always just been, I felt like beholden to what's in my area unless I wanted to travel to another city and look at a car lot. You know, yeah. like if I wanted to buy a Toyota Camry or whatnot, I would go to the Toyota dealerships in town. But now it's like whether it's CarMax or any Carbana, dealer, Carbana, yeah, yeah, it's I can get online. And it's like really the distance is no, it's no barrier anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking, yeah, you know what, like two two hundred to a thousand dollars usually. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like yeah. To transfer the car that that you want, the exact car that you want. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm a product manager at Super Dispatch. Yep. Um, yeah. I started out on our hardware team. Um, when they were just starting it. Um, so this was at a time where I was like, oh, you know, I can't really replicate sensory at all. You know, it's on the back shelf. I'm still getting some money from cities, but it's not enough to sustain even freelancers and myself with zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to eat, yeah. is what you're saying. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, and you know, a gym membership would also be yeah, nice. That's so, oh, there you go. <laughs> Gotta throw that in there. Yeah, right. Absolutely, that's, that's what sold me, of course. Um, so I actually got coffee with the CEO um, just kind of out of the blue, um, before I had applied for like a growth marketing spot, because you know, as an entrepreneur, you can do literally everything. So you see a job opening at a place you want to work, uh, you just go for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you just uh, say yes and figure it out. Yep. So I got coffee. And then at the end of the conversation, uh, CEO essentially was like, well, uh, do you want to work here on our hardware team? Uh, tell me by Friday. <laughs> no, knowing him, that's exactly it's how a, that conversation how opportunity yeah, 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 that's, uh, yeah. yeah. His name is Beck Abdullayev. And, uh, on Friday, I actually went into the office. I said, yeah, um, they wanted me to come over for a social hour. Uh, you know, I turned down beers from the first two people and I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm catching on now. Yes, yeah. I'll have a yeah. beer. Thanks. And you can legally drink those now because what you're like 22, 20, <laughs> 24. Thanks. Yeah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Definitely moving up in the yeah, age, of yeah, course. Right. Um, and so social hour there. And then they gave me the hardware product that they had oh, uh, cool. before they had hired me. And they were like, um, you know, we've never gotten this working before. Oh, interesting. Um, doesn't work in pickup trucks. We have no idea what to do with semi trucks. Um, you know technology. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you like fix this this weekend ah, and uh, let me know by Monday? That was my. That was your test. Know, that was my test. Ah, and uh, as I said, I don't program um, yeah. this piece of hardware. It's like a it's a white labeling situation where yeah. they've got a manufacturer. We have software developers. Oh. Perfect combination, yeah. right? Um, well, at least in theory. Uh-huh. And so I took that piece of hardware. Except the manufacturer doesn't, more, normally they don't want you to do anything mm-hmm. that would go outside their... Correct. Yeah, yeah they, they won't tell you anything. Um, you can't change anything on the firmware level. Yep. Um, all you can do is just change uh, what fields go where and what it looks like. Mm. So it's a pretty big challenge, especially if you're dealing with a Bluetooth device, yeah, which of is course. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my least favorite technology standards. But mm-hmm. I, I took that device home over the weekend and um, all I did really was call the manufacturer and ask for their troubleshooting sheet, and that was it. There was no programming required. Just make a phone like call. That. Yeah, make a phone call. <laughs> then uh, uh, at the time, my girlfriend at the time, uh, her dad had um, a Ford F two fifty, which was a little closer to the kind of car that yeah, you know, big truck. A, an actual car hauler would be using. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I tested it out in that, got it to work. Of course, couldn't access any semis or anything like yeah, that. Right. right. Tested it in my own, you know, Toyota Corolla. <laughs> got, it, <laughs> nice. got it to work in a two out of three of yeah. the vehicles that I tested that weekend and then sent them a detailed email that it's probably actually the longest email I've ever written in my life, but it's also probably the best organized. There you go. Um, I'm usually like a 
three bullet point I give them like an industry analysis you know because there's a lot of legislation in the EU going around about how BMW um, they introduced a bill that was trying to eliminate um, third-party access to like telematics ports like uh, uh, OBD2 and these yeah. kinds of diagnostic ports because they instead want to sell that information via an API um, similar to kind of how Tesla internally manages their own vehicles. Mm-hmm. You know, they have wireless networks. They There's over-the-air updates and stuff like that. Yeah. Everything's trending in that direction, but the telematics industry is, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to lock it down and monetize the access to it. Wow. Yeah. But uh, that did not pass in the EU and has not been introduced in the U.S. All right, fair enough. So what we found is that product managers, there's different flavors of product managers based on who you're talking to. It could be, be whether it's the industry software or hardware, but even if you're developing software, each company kind of has a little bit of a different flavor of, of a product manager. So tell us kind of day in, day out, what are your, what are your responsibilities? What do you oversee? And then how do you, how does your product team function? What's your role within your product team? And sure. what are the other types of roles you interface with? Okay. So, um, I actually kind of wrapped up my time on the hardware device at yeah. Super Dispatch after I think it was a year. It was it was okay. like almost exactly one year. Um, my job was to, you know, fix it. Uh, and then not only do just that de- detail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was just, your one just, goal. Just fix it. Make it make it work. Make it and work. then they yep. shoot me away. Um, <laughs> so yeah, fix it. Yeah. Um, we we've mostly done that. I mean hardware is incredibly challenging. Yeah. Especially when you don't have uh, people with hardware expertise. And you're you, not in control. You, you, I mean you have a team of incredibly talented software engineers, but this is just like any other software discipline. Sure, mm-hmm. they can read the documentation, but have they done it before? Right. You know, same goes for analytics, same goes for hardware. It's it's challenging. And so I took it to market, sold the first 100 devices, and then gave that sales playbook to our sales team. And then the rest of it has been self-serve. And so after we wow. did that, um, I actually took a trip out to see our developers, which we have a very distributed team, yeah, where do. most of our engineers are actually in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, Central wow. Asia. Um, so I actually went out there to the office, That's stayed there for a month. Um, it was a very crazy experience with lots of great stories, but ultimately it was very nice again, just like at Sensory, to work in the same room mm-hmm. as all the engineers. Mm-hmm. We were and talking about before we started recording, yeah. and that, how valuable that, that being able to have some face-to-face mm-hmm. time is. Oh, it's quick decision-making, right? Because yeah. you're able to actually be like, you know, is this a three-hour or a three-week Kind of tasks, right. yeah. um, and when you have a distributed team, often you have time zone challenges uh-huh. and language barriers as yeah. well. Yeah. Outside of the normal product engineering miscommunications, just because you have different areas of expertise. Yeah. So and you're you, human beings. You make that too. So, yeah. so now different there's five culture, variables, different customs. That yeah. I'll make it very different. Yeah, of course. Uh, the customs is a big thing because some people are more or less comfortable with critiques or feedback and, mm-hmm. and safe face cultures and. It's difficult to get around that. Yeah. But um, so I went over to Tashkent and I actually changed roles into uh, being the PM for a marketplace product oh. that connected literally every other product in our entire company. So it was more of a project management since mm. it was all hands on deck. You know, leadership is like, you know what, we've got 90 days. Why don't we build a new product and launch it by August 1st? Mm. And that was this summer. <laughs> Welcome to tech startups. Yep, yeah. there you go. So did you go on a long vacation over the summer? You um, probably I actually, had a whole bunch of time, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I actually had to push back all my not vacations, and I uh, took that last week, actually. So oh, I, good for you. Yesterday was my first day back. So that so means you, nice. hopefully, you hit your goal. I mean, at We least. did, yeah. We launched it on time, and I'd say the number one reason why is kind of my favorite quality in a product manager, probably, or at least a skill that I would look for, mm. you know, as an entrepreneur hiring for my my next startup, my next company, my next team. Um, it's a phrase I kind of call being a scope critic. 
someone who like is that. very close with engineers to the point where um, you kind of get the feeling if you have a technical understanding, even a very small technical understanding of, okay, this is front end, this is back end, this is, you know, yeah. whatever yeah. the intricacies are, um, where you know that something's going to be a little too complicated. Mm. And so you cut it out and you rely instead on iterations. Yep. Because I think a lot of pre-series A companies in particular really struggle with feature creep. Yeah, because of course you're trying to get more customers. You want to make them all happy. Some mm-hmm. people have like customer appreciation sprints mm-hmm. where you know one person's like, "I really need this pay this uh, field for driver pay," and so but we know you know you get into the intricacies and you see how big the task this is, and you're like, you know what, we're just going to make them happy. Yeah, this week. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes that's the right decision. Oftentimes that's it's like, well, we waste we we spend a lot of time for one customer, and mm-hmm. we don't know if that's a common problem or if there's a trend there yeah. or you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if your analytics aren't mature enough, you have absolutely no idea. Yeah, it's all instead you have to well gut or if you're really obsessed with customer feedback, you got to constantly talk to them. But well, sure, you to, sure, you have to ask the questions in such an interesting way that you're not biasing them as well. So it kind of also speaks to the fact that as a product manager, you have to look at the data to be data informed. Of course, um, but also there's like an intuition as well. Um, there may not be enough data to say, oh, this is a trend. This is what our customers want. But for some, whatever reason. I'm using my intuition here, and it's like, like you said, we're just going to make the customers happy this one time and see what happens. <laughs> I mean. What's the, what's the worst that could happen? You know, um, I just think that kind of speaks to the dual role there as a product manager of being open to what the customers say, but also using the data, data from your team, data from customers. How are you working with your teams? So you talked a little bit about going over overseas to kind of work with the developers, but on a day-to-day basis now you're back here, you're in Kansas city. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to collaborate with the other roles and what are the other roles that you do end up collaborating? Is it all engineering or are you talking to other people? So um, all of our teams are incredibly different. Um, and we're, usually each product manager at Super Dispatch has their own product. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I did the hardware product. Now I've got the marketplace product. It's more of a project, really. Since yeah, it sure. Touches everything. Sure. But as a general rule of thumb, everyone's got dedicated designer. Everyone has dedicated QA. And then however many engineers are happen yeah, to be on their yeah, team. Yeah. We've gone everything from, you know, like a four engineer team for like more mobile facing products where it's just... One backend, two mobile, yep. QA, and then a PM and no designer, all the way to like a 13 person team Ooh, on like wow. the most mature core product that just has constant work on yeah. it. Yeah. Those so are big teams. It's 13. Yeah. We, I mean, there's a general rule of thumb for like meetings as well, right? You got to yeah. do them with two pizzas. And yep. like we're not even in the same office either. So that <laughs> it becomes even more logistically complicated yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> at the least. Um, but the way I work with my team, for example, it's a pretty standard structure. We've got one PM, we've got a designer. And then we've got, um, so let me back up a little bit. So um, the product that I have, the Marketplace, um, primarily, um, this is used on our mobile apps. Yep. But there is, of course, a dashboard, you know, a, a web app interface. There's always a dashboard. Yeah. And so to be more agile, um, instead of building it natively on mobile, we just have a web view instead. Oh, I that see. way we don't, have to, we don't have to depend on the mobile team at all. Yep. There's no dependencies. There's almost no shared resources. Yep. And uh, because of that, we're able to fix bugs instantly. Uh, we see what's going on. It's it's really good for us right now. It's a lot easier to test mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. And so the way that we work is, um, my team's probably the most experimental in terms of processes or structure. Our team lead is a designer on all of the teams. The team lead is a lead engineer. 
you know, whoever really is the most talented engineer on that team or the most senior like engineer that. on that team, yeah. that's usually the person. As a designer, I think that's a great idea. Of so. course. <laughs> <laughs> and really for us, um, it's an experiment. And I don't really have any conclusions yet on it because <laughs> it, it <laughs> just happened like out. within the last like three weeks or that's something awesome. like that. That's but awesome. fairly new. Yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of exacerbates to an extent, like two sides of a coin. Mm-hmm. It exacerbates the fact that when you talk to your team lead, they can't answer technical questions. Is this three hours? Is this three weeks? Yeah. Yep. And when you have, a, for example, the time difference between, you know, U.S. Central Time and Uzbekistan Time is anywhere from 10 to 11 hours. Right. So if you have a question to ask and that's not going to be answered Hmm. until the next day. Yeah. The other side of the coin is that, you know, if something breaks over the weekend Mm -hmm. in the U S time and you come back to the office on Monday, well, Monday has already happened in Uzbekistan. So it's already been fixed. And Uh, so, yeah, like you said, there's pros and cons. I mean, like there is some challenges and that maybe gets to kind of one of these other questions, but you know, what are some of those other challenges, both with a distributed team and also just, you know, in the world of what we do, there are, mm-hmm. there it comes with its own quirks. Feature creep is a big one too, mm-hmm. um, especially when you have like a strong leadership team that has a clear vision about this is the direction we want to take the industry. Mm. Super Dispatch is a first mover um, yeah. to an extent, and so we have a lot of flexibility in terms of the innovation that we deliver or the speed that we try to disrupt the industry at mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, but the problem is that there's always people creeping up on oh, your yeah. position in oh, the market. Yeah always going to be. I yeah. found that out with sensory. There was no one that did what we were doing for the first three years. And then out of nowhere, someone from Carnegie Mellon raised 11 million and built a huge team. So if you do wait long enough, yeah, somebody else will do it. Yeah. it. It will happen. And then you have, you have to blitz scale as Reed Hoffman would say, just yeah, get all the money, spend it all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Build the plane at, you know, uh-huh. as you're jumping out. Yeah. Totally. Exactly what he says. So the challenges for me with a distributed team kind of already covered them. The biggest ones are probably the safe face culture. Mm, like you mm-hmm. can get around time zone differences a couple times a week. I'll stay up late. You know, I'll make myself available from like, you know, 12 AM to 2 AM. And that's I right when they start days. in the morning. Yeah. That's right when they start in the morning. So right. you're able to attend standups. Yep. You're able to sync up with your team lead and then clarify any questions about whatever task it is that they're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really nice. So you can, and that's, those are really the times when you feel like you're moving fast. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause for me, Moving fast is a completely different animal when you have the engineers in the same room. Yeah. You can just, you know, walk up to their desk and be like, we need to change this text on a disclaimer form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, just push it right now. That's it. <laughs> I but know. when it's a distributed team, you got to create a card, you got to document it, you got to right. send it over, you got to make sure people are notified and see it. You got to follow up on it. You got to see, okay, is this in ready for release? Is this released? Right. Is it in production? And then you have people asking you questions in like, the normal business unit office that we have where there are no engineers. Mm-hmm. So the product people, those are, those are the endpoints. They get the most questions out of anyone because they have the most touch points, right? They need marketing needs to know what you're mm-hmm. pushing. Mm-hmm. So uh, another big challenge that we have is really, um, keeping other departments updated on what's going on with product. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cause everyone works differently, right? Like right. there's so many different tools that my team uses that other teams don't use or that other teams have access to, but, that person, you know, wasn't the champion of that piece of yeah, software. So they don't care so, as much as you do. Right. They, or they don't care at all. Right. <laughs> they don't do it unless their boss asks them to. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. We're all our own bosses really yeah. for our products. It's, yeah. We're micro entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. Well, mm-hmm. you guys have grown so much. I mean, oh, I so, um, you know, as the, as the company grows, a culture changes um, and comes with it, you know, shared understanding gets mm-hmm. spread out a lot further. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. 
Um, so in the last four or five years, you've done a lot. So they're right. sensory, they're super dispatch. You've also had some really cool opportunities. I see that you were, you were a fellow, a design fellow right. at the D school. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout that time, we're big about learning here. Um, and we want anyone who listens to this podcast to be able to walk away with like, especially if they have a passion for product. So what are the top two or three takeaways you would give to someone, mm-hmm. not necessarily about product management, but they're interested in building products as part of a product team. They could be a really good designer. Um, how, how would they go about getting in the industry? What advice would you give them? I think the biggest thing really is to, you've got to really pick up product development philosophy regardless of your role Mm -hmm. on the team really and you know everyone says there's usually two um there's the apple design philosophy you don't know what you want because you don't know what's possible Uh and the lean startup philosophy which is call your customers who's screaming the loudest build that right Mm, um it's finding your personal preference really and then using that as kind of like not an 80 20 bias but maybe a 60 40 bias for you know having motivation in what you're building and what you're doing because i mean really that's a huge source of inspiration like just being able to either innovate the industry yeah. based on what you know is possible and others mm-hmm. don't, or really building something that people actually love. And then when you do it, you update them and you get that really cathartic feedback of, I love what you're doing. I'm going to tell all my friends about it. There's, you know, grow that viral coefficient. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. There are pros and cons to each. And I'm more of a fan of the Apple design philosophy because I want to push the envelope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's me building from zero to one. That's, that's what I love. Um, but real quick, I want to say, I think that's a really important point because I think when we even started out early on, we're trying to figure out, we, we read the lean startup, uh, lean UX. Uh, there's so many different philosophies on building product. And a lot of times I would walk away going like, man, there's good things in each one of these. Mm -hmm. And so I think over time, uh, depending on your role, whether you're the founder or you're part of the product team is being able to maybe take bits and pieces of each kind of like you said, a 60, 40 bias, or like maybe if you find two or three different philosophies of like, there's good things in each one, it doesn't all have to be around the lean startup or the Apple design philosophy or waterfall or whatever, but let's not get into the waterfall. Um, that, we're going to stay away from that one. But the idea that there are good things about each philosophy, I, I think that's a really key point. I think that's really good. It's it's absolutely driven kind of how I see product development. Yeah. And the only other takeaway I'd really give you is being a scope critic. Uh, mm, really, I love that. Like, I'm going to use that. This is, you know, there, it has a relationship with feature creep, of course, mm-hmm. but this is really, you know, if you're a team that plans your roadmap mm-hmm. and that has like a concrete idea of what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, really, if we just built exactly what it was in terms of full feature without like valuing iterations, we would not have launched a marketplace product mm-hmm. that completed our end-to-end vehicle shipping platform in 90 days. Which is incredible. It, it would not have happened. Instead, yeah. we had to back up to you know version 0.1, build it from there, and just realize that we are going to have time to improve this. Mm-hmm. We've had, you know, Super Dispatch has been in business since, you know, 2013, 14, 15 and different it been versions. That long wow, that's crazy. Well, it's it's kind of complicated too because the products at different stages. Sure. Mm-hmm. We have people celebrating, you know, six year anniversaries when in right. reality the company has been founded for five years. So right. I still remember <laughs> being in a barbecue with Beck and him saying, Well, I'm gonna try this thing. And it, it was just try. like it was, yeah, it was like <laughs> now to see where you guys are at is incredible. Yeah, that's it like, is incredible. And it's really fun to be really in the driver's seat as a product person. And yeah. I think that's kind of the perfect formula. This is very similar to the, you know, Marissa Mayer PM scheme yeah. where you're going to train these people to be amazing. 
mm-hmm. by giving them the opportunity to figure it out. So these have to be, you know, really internal locus of control kind of people that have a product philosophy and vision and really just take it and make it happen. Mm. They're really just training entrepreneurs. Right. So good. Smart guy. Come on. That's good. Okay. Um, I, I actually, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. And I think that I heard you say there's kind of this, like the, the original story comes back and something may have pivoted. Right. So can you talk about that? Can we fill yeah. in that gap? I'm kind of curious. Okay. So sure. Um, very first version of sensory yeah. was, you know, the te- we don't use this technology anymore and it's, widely used in the academic space in terms of like there's a lot of research papers around using accelerometers mm-hmm. gyroscopes mm-hmm. and gps in order to identify defects on the road but if you think about what an accelerometer does very simply it measures the x y and z axis of right. movement right think of just like a little steel ball that sits at zero and when you drop your phone straight down the y-axis spikes you know negative mm-hmm. five or whatever totally it is. totally so we just listen to the y-axis but that would mean when we install this device in vehicles they would have to actually run over the pothole for us to find it. Yeah, of course. Um, and that was the pivot after we realized, you know, well, realized is a very strong word. After we assumed that <laughs> uh, computer vision was too expensive from the way that we were going to implement it as a bootstrapped company. Yeah. So we switched to accelerometers and it really limited our scalability. Hmm. Um, and, you know, fast forward like two years of just sitting on some free pilots in other cities around the area, just kind of letting them use the technology, right? whatever, right? right? You know, get some people that have actually used it, some case studies perhaps, and then one paying big customer. Um, I went back to the computer vision problem, realizing that, you know, if we actually built this into an application rather than just a piece of hardware, the scalability of this and the first mover advantage could actually be realized. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I went back. We really thought deep. I took a bunch of my engineering friends that I know through through Betablocks, um, you know, local incubator, um, just through friends in my network, and got them in the same room. And essentially, we sat down. And we were like, "All right, here is the new idea. Help me translate this from you know traditional Jira card right, to right. Um, <laughs> a smaller, leaner version that will actually deliver on an MVP. Mm. But it's not an MVP. It's a complete rewrite." Oh, wow. Of course. Yeah. Yep. yep. And so I'm probably two thirds through that actually right now. That's exciting. Yeah. Man, absolutely. You move fast. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the context. We've got one other competitor and yeah, we'll see what happens. But, you know, hopefully this transforms from a weekend project to again, yeah. <laughs> going back to it full time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what's exciting is maybe being able to take some of the context that you've learned through Super Dispatch and applying that to wow, I can see this, mm-hmm. what that could be at scale or where it starts to go to scale. Uh, that's that's really exciting. Well, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I took this product to market and I've done that two or three times now with different products. Did so that with Sensory's first hardware product, with Super Dispatch's first hardware product. Yeah, yeah. And now with the marketplace, you know, of course you introduce economics and it gets very confusing and different from anything else you can build in this of course. world. Um, but it also kind of lets you understand growth. So it's helping me grow outside of just, okay, this guy can bring products to market, sell them, get early traction, but can he grow them? Uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking of. But if you look at Reed Hoffman, he would say he, I mean, yeah, he could scale things pretty quickly, but as soon as it got to scale, he was kind of bored. Yeah. You know? well, um, and then he would go build the next thing. I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's fair. All right, Mike. So one more question. You seem like you are a very passionate guy you exude passion i could tell the moment you walked in here um 
tell us a little bit how where where do you go for inspiration? So um, as you think about your craft, both as an entrepreneur and founder, but also as a product manager, where do you go to stay sharp? Where do you go to learn? What does that look like for you? So specifically as someone who's building a marketplace, not only building it, um, but trying to grow it, um, there's just one really unique like blog site that I use for that has absolutely everything about KPIs, about growth, oh. you know, early seeding and stuff like that. It's called the Marketplace Academy. Okay, um, good. It's a fantastic place if you're someone that's building or has a product or a company that involves a marketplace component with supply and demand. Um, it's an incredible resource. But for just general inspiration, for literally three or four years, I've just been reading the same book over and over and over again. Um, there's actually two books, but one of them is a little more important to me. Um, one's called The Mom Test by hmm. Rob Fitzpatrick. And, you know, the subtitle Tyler's is, Tyler's talked about you know, this. Yeah. everyone's lying to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and right. People are way too nice. Yeah. 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 Well, especially in the Midwest and sure. especially oh, in safe based yeah. cultures. Yeah. So, um, you know, the premise of the book is essentially you go to your mom and you say, hey, mom, um, you want to buy my ebook for a cooking book? Of course, honey. Yeah. Of course I do. You, you come to her <laughs> with a place of vulnerability. She, you're essentially begging the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, instead, what you should ask is. Hey mom, was the last time you used a cookbook? Mm. And she says, you know, I don't know. It's been years. Right. And that answers your question. Right. Mm. So it's how to ask questions like that in your everyday life, in your product life. It's an amazing book and it's Love that. just covered in sticky yeah. notes that I have to like turn up in order to so read. Yeah. Those are yeah. the best and books. The other book is called The Messy Middle. Oh, um, yeah. I forget the author's name actually, mm-hmm. but it has a yellow title and it's a little more expensive than you'd like on Amazon, but, um, <laughs> it's absolutely worth it. It's, it's about, it's such pro- a good book. It's, it's about the product journey that you don't read about. It's yeah. not about the start. It's not about the end. It's about the middle that is never written or talked about or celebrated where all the confusion, all the turmoil, all the mental health challenges yeah. actually mm-hmm. goes down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's That's written really a couple good. other books as well, but that that one took off very very quickly. Yeah, um, it's very exciting. Well, great, Mike. Thanks for coming in today. This is great. That was so good. Thank you for joining us. And uh, man, very thoughtful. Yeah, um, I I like the way that you're. One of the things that I think we talk a lot about is that people that learn fast are the ones that succeed. Yeah, and you can tell that. I mean, gosh. You're learning so much so fast, both by doing and mm-hmm. by consuming. So well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you for sharing your tips and tricks with yeah. our audience. Absolutely. Thanks yeah, for this having is me really on. good. Yeah. Appreciate the time. What a great conversation we have with Mike. He is so thoughtful and learning so fast. Um, I think, again, coming back to something he said Uh, which is that idea that a product manager ought to be a scope critic, I think is something I'm going to really start to apply to the way that we think about product management. It is hard to manage a scope. It's hard to manage the work that we have to get done. And um, even more complicated is when you're doing that with a distributed team. Um, Mike's working with team um, both here locally in Kansas City, but also uh, overseas. And it comes with both its pros and cons, but there's a lot of challenge in communication and and speed as to being able to get things done. But um, I think his his focus on making sure that they are building the right thing um, as they're moving forward and, and making sure that they're iterating as they move forward is really impressive. So um, what a great conversation we have with Mike. 
As always, I just, I really have to thank you guys for taking the time to listen to um, our podcast here on Option 5. One of the things that we're trying to do is listen to people in the product space, better understand what are the risks they're taking, what are their Option 5 moments where they're saying yes and then they're learning as they go, because we all do it. And um, we are doing that with this this podcast. And so one of the things that we're trying to make sure is that we're providing value to you. So if this has been valuable to you, you could do us a huge favor. And that is to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review with a great comment, just telling the world that Option 5 is a great place to learn more about how to be in the product space as a product manager, a designer, a developer, um, test engineer, et cetera. We really want to help people to build great products and great product cultures. So this episode itself has been brought to you by Crema. Uh, We are a digital product agency based in the heart of Kansas City. And we're really focused on helping people build digital products that really help to make our business lives and our personal lives better. So if you want to check us out at crema.us and of course, um, look up more episodes at option5.com. Until next time, we'll see you guys.